Father, we just thank you for today. We thank you for all the ways that you continue to bless this body of believers, Lord. And we just thank you for the, just the encouragement and the strength that we have in your name, Lord, when times are tough, that we can lean on each other and, and in prayer, God. We just pray that as we move through our service today here and our service at the home church, um, that you would just steady our hearts and minds, God, so that we can just put our focus on you. In your name, amen. So, there have been a few phrases over the years that have kind of worked their way into my uh, Christian vernacular. And um, it's funny because they're things that, you know, I have a hard time, I guess, getting away from because they just seem to, like, prove a point so well. And um, one of them that I put in the home church video and that I realized, um, you know, if I say something insane like that, I can't not explain it. So I actually did the whole home church video and then I had to, when I was editing it, I had to actually, like, like stop it and interject something in there saying, okay, I have to explain that. And that is because one example of something that I've said before is, I don't know if you've experienced this or not, but uh, around uh, kind of the year 2000-ish, um, when, you know, you kind of had a lot of, lot of real big evangelical churches popping up, um, you know, th there was, there, there's kind of certain trends that you would see happen. And one of those things that was always so weird to me coming from a more traditional church is you would have people who would show up and they would, uh, you know, typically not, not individuals who felt led by the spirit or anything like that, but you'd have like the pastor call somebody in to like give, give a talk and give their testimony, right? And this is something they did, but after a while, it almost kind of seemed like church theater in a sense. Like, because what it was is it was, let me grab the most dramatic testimony I can and put it in front of everybody so they go, man, wow, isn't that awesome? Isn't that God good? And there's some, there's some valid reasons to do that, but at a certain point in time, like sometimes it almost kind of seemed a little bit manipulative in a way. And I think the reason why I felt that way was because I would look at a lot of the people that were like my friends that you know, were people who didn't have, like, the cool hip parents and all that. I'm sorry, Mom and Dad, I'm not saying that cool. <laughs> um, but, like, they didn't have, like, the trendy in-crowd whatever, or they didn't have, like, some crazy life story. And you started to feel like, well, I'm less of a Christian because I don't have that story. Like, I always, I kind of grew up in the church, right? Like, I grew up in, like, an Episcopal and a Lutheran church and everything. So everything was very just kind of like, I'm a good kid. I went to Boy Scouts and I did what I was told to do, right? So, like, I ate my vegetables. And then, you know, I, when I made the decision that, you know, I wanted to have a relationship with Christ, you know, I made that decision. And then afterwards, I didn't really outside look all that different than I did before, right? And this is why I had a big issue with the phrase that's kind of the popular, um, you know, kind of, uh, um, I used to call it like the Liberty University, very Falwell version of doing the testimony. But kind of the thing that became popular in the testimony is about, well, tell them who you were before, tell them how you came to know Christ. And tell somebody who you are now that you have Christ. And the phrase that worked its way into my vernacular was, that works really, really good if you used to, like, you know, be addicted to hookers and blow. Now, uh, when I say that, you have to understand that this phrase is something that, because it's just kind of, like, ingrained in my head, uh, I thought that, I mean, I have a hard time getting away from it. So you can imagine the shock and surprise of a bunch of individuals when I'm at Infuge with a whole bunch of, teenagers and people not from my church and this poor very very nice innocent liberty university student who's studying in seminary who is turning around saying oh well and you know one of the the youth pastors that got volunteered to be with us is a uh, pastor joseph pack here who's 
you know, from such and such church down in Bowling Green and everything. And, uh, you know, there's a typical model that I'm sure you're aware of, Pastor Joseph. Oh, yep. And they're like, yeah, so would you like to tell everybody about that model? And what I should have said was just the little thing they wanted me to say. But what I chose to talk about was that that works really well if you used to be addicted to hooking and blow. And I said this to a bunch of impressionable teenagers, and I broke some people that day. But by the time we got to the end of it, everybody had a very good understanding of, ta- you know, what, what it meant to have a relationship with Christ. And, uh, uh, you know, like, as soon as I got away from that phrase, and we started talking about, like, well, explain, you know, if you want to talk about your faith, don't talk about, like, physical outward transformation. Like, just talk about what God means to you, you know? Like, imagine a world where you did, like, poof, tomorrow you don't have Christ anymore. What does that mean to you? You know, is it something inside, outside? Like, what is it? And, like, we got to a point where it was good. But we had to get away from that phrase, you know, because a lot of people were, you know, they hear phrases and they want to follow instructions, right? And it's kind of funny because as much as we want to think about being kind of like these, you know, very independently minded Westerners and everything, we love kind of being in compliance. It's something we love to do. Uh, It's been one of the things that's actually been almost kind of like the funniest to see during all the pandemic. If you get away from like the sharp opinions about masks and vaccines and all that kind of stuff, just kind of like look at the human condition for a second and look at how people respond to like the whole idea of like compliance and non-compliance and all that. And it's just like fascinating seeing how we will abandon all like independent thought about something so that we can comply with, you know, either like a saying or a phrase or slogan or something like that. So where am I going with Well, one of the other phrases that has kind of worked its way into a lot of things that I find myself saying often in my conversations, both when it comes to church-related stuff and also when I'm just talking to you know people throughout the week, is I'll talk about this whole idea that the Christian society is crumbling. That you know we're no longer in kind of this uh, 1950s you know great society kind of world where you can say, oh, generally speaking, everybody goes to church on Sunday and you know uh, we have prayer in school and all that kind of stuff. And I look at it and say, good, I'm happy about that. But the reason why is not because I hate prayer or anything like that. It's because the Christian society has kind of allowed certain things to happen that I think have tricked people into thinking maybe they have a better relationship with Christ than they really do. A lot of people kind of got accustomed to the fact that by and large, if I'm doing good things out there in society, I'm probably also being a good Christian because we're kind of a Christian nation. So, you know, if you're being good out there, you're probably being good in here. And and people get the idea that these little phrases that we use, these little slogans we like to live by, are things that would be honorable or aligned with the teachings of Christ, when in reality, sometimes they're not. They may feel very good and they may resonate with where our society is, but they may not actually be something that if you went through and studied the words of Christ, the words of like the patriarchs, the words of the apostles, it, would, it wouldn't match up. And so what do I mean by that? Well, there's a few of them. I've heard several times people say things like, you know, well, I'll forgive, but I won't forget. You know, I'll, it's almost like that's their way of kind of like trying to get off on a technicality of like, well, you should forgive everybody. It's saying, well, I'll forgive, but I won't forget. Well, you kind of look at that and go like, mm, well, I mean, it's not, it's not really totally scriptural. I mean, you know, the reality is if you're doing that, you're still, you know, th- by definition, you're putting some degree of animosity in your heart. It's not to say there's not some element of that maybe that if you really wanted to, you could sit there and twist and say, well, there's some verses that maybe kind of bag it up. But it's pretty hard to reconcile that with the spirit and the tone of exactly everything that Christ taught us. Um, you know, you'll hear people say that only God can judge me. That's another popular thing you'll hear people say. Well, you know, only God can really judge me. But the reality is that when you sit here and you look at the scriptures, there's a very strong delineation in between people who claim to be a part of the body of believers and people who aren't. 
And ironically, where you see a lot of Christians, you know, kind of blaming the outside world, that's the kind of judgment the Bible says that you probably shouldn't be doing. But the holding accountable individuals, your brothers and sisters inside the church, there is a degree of that in the Bible. It's absolutely there. Um, these are all things, by the way, that when I was writing these down, it was literally over the, like the last week, I was just looking at different memes and sayings people posted on Facebook. And so I'm not just making these up. These are things I saw people like posting who I consider generally good, good God-fearing people. Um, you know, somebody else had something that was along, it was, it was really long, but it was along the lines of like, I want my kids to be respectful, but I'll teach them that if they get pushed, they should be ready to push back. There was some variation of that. Again, this sounds very good and it makes us feel very empowered and strong and all that kind of stuff. And you look at that and say, well, that's not really what Christ told us. Like, actually, that's literally the opposite of what Christ told us. Um, so, you know, and, and, and it's hard, right? I mean, these are things that... They, the reason why we have these phrases is because these align with kind of our ethos. They, it aligns with our mindset that we have in our society today. So these things sound right. And the problem and the reason why I say I look forward to the crumbling of the Christian society is because one of the things that we need to do within the universal church is we need to crack apart the understanding of what is right by society versus what is right scripturally because the two are not the same. And I think that because so many of us, or maybe our parents, maybe our parents' parents, grew up in a society where, by and large, societal norms were aligned or claimed to be aligned with the Bible, we got use of kind of relinquishing our responsibility to actually know God and to, like, know the teachings of Christ to the world. We started saying, society, you take care of teaching me what's right and wrong. And so now, as society starts veering off in its own direction... What it's doing is it's pulling a whole lot of people who maybe really didn't have as strong relationships with Christ as they thought they did. And it's pulling them off into a different direction too. So I look forward to it because as soon as you crack these two apart and go, all right, there's no more confusion, okay? This is what the world does, and this is the teaching, these are the teachings of Christ. This is how we see things painting out, painting out in the Bible. And this is something that I think I've substantiated with because if you look at the areas where there's the most aggressive growth in the church, it's not in areas that pin themselves as Christian or Christian-based societies. All of the great Christian kingdoms of Europe are secularizing. Any nation that's out there by and large that claims to have Christianity as its official language is seeing a very, you know, stagnant church. But yet areas where you see the church persecuted, where you see uh, the, the, the people of God being the individuals who are not the norm, who are the thing that are odd, those are the areas where you see growth happening. And it's because there's a very clear picture of what Christ wants. Suddenly, people don't look at the rest of the world and have any confusion at all at that that is not something that is of God. This other stuff is that of God. So when you see bad things happen in the world, don't sit here and freak out about the fact, well, this just shows how bad God is because that's not of God. That is of the world. So there's a goodness to breaking down this connection, this, this coupling that has existed between the world and between what we see Christ actually advocating for. So I think this right here is where we start cutting to the heart of a phrase that is an often quoted uh, verse out of Romans 12. It's Romans 12 too. It says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. This is something that would have resonated so much with the early church since they did not live in a Christian society, mainly because there hadn't been enough Christian past for there to be a Christian society. They, by definition, didn't live around a society that tried to say that they were aligned with God or anything like that because there hadn't been enough time to have passed 
for something like that to form. So they had to be very, very judicious in looking at the world around them and saying, this may be what feels good. This may be what I think feels right, but it feels right because that's the world I grew up in. That's just kind of the, the ethos that everybody around me taught me and raised me with. And so, you know, yes, it feels right, but I have to have discernment and wisdom and there has to be a level of discipline to say, but maybe that's not totally what Christ asked me to do. I'm reminded of, you know, a, a, a song that I know I've, I've talked about, you know, year years ago that, you know, where an individual basically, he goes through these lyrics and he kind of pontificates on, it's amazing how fortunate we all are that God just, we just happen by chance to be born in the nation that God loves the absolute most. And if we're just good Americans, then we'll be good Christians and all that kind of stuff. But there's this mentality sometimes within the American mindset that it's like, you know, God really does love us the most, you know, because we have all this stuff and God bless this country and all that. So that, that, that Christian nationalism type of thing, you know, starts creeping up. And when I look at that, I can't help but think that, you know, again, there's that unhealthy coupling that exists between society and God. And we start fooling ourselves if we're not careful into thinking that our alignment or our belonging to a culture and a people and a nation, we start thinking that that's a partnership with our relationship with God. In reality, it's not a partnership. There's a hierarchy that our devotion to God and our allegiance to God should be much higher than anything that we have culturally. So when we read Paul sitting here telling the Gentiles, saying, do not be conformed to this age, he is warning them against not just a single generation or anything like that, but trying to warn them against becoming too much what the world may say is right, what the world may say is correct. Because rest assured, the world is not in the business of ceding its power and authority to God. That is not why the world exists. And so we should be very, very cautious, very skeptical when we see anything that looks like a kitschy little phrase or a little cultural thing that tries to claim, well, if you do this, you're being a good, moral, honest person. We should always be willing to look at those things and take them for what they're worth, not totally throw them out, but take them for what they're worth, but then always measure them against the truth that has to be unyielding, that has to be uncompromising, that comes from the teachings of Christ. So, you know, when I sit here and I pick on phrases, it's easy to ask the critical question, basically just say, well, what's the harm in some little slogans? What's the harm in posting a little thing to Facebook or something like that? Aside from the fact that Facebook given the fact that it's here and it kind of has market share and all that we have to deal with it, uh, Facebook is awful. It's become an awful, terrible thing. Uh, but I'm on it all the time because this is this is the world we live in, right? Uh, so that being said, what's the harm in like sharing these little things? You know, is it, is it overanalyzing how people talk to sit here and get on these little phrases that we use? And I would say that it's not because the problem is that what we were talking about in the very beginning, people latch on to these little phrases and slogans, whether we say them or whether we kind of live them out. You know, we tend to hear these little things that sound like they're contemporary truth and contemporary wisdom and go like, yeah, yeah, that's the kind of person I want to be because it sounds cool, you know, or it sounds empowering or something like that. And there has to be that level of discipline in there where we say, you know, I need to keep them separate. Because the danger is that we end up being deceived. We end up looking at something that sounds like wisdom, but in reality, it's just kind of a mockery of wisdom. It's just kind of something prancing around as if it's wisdom, but it doesn't align with what we know is true wisdom from God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 through 23, we end up reading uh, Paul once again, talk about this exact concept. Let no one deceive himself if anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age. Let him become a fool so that he can become wise. 
For the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God, and since it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the reasonings of the wise are futile. So let no one boast in human leaders, for everything is yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. Everything is yours, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to all. There's two aspects of this this section here that, to me, cut so deeply to the heart of the issue. And it's that first couple of verses there that talk about the fact that uh, if anyone among you thinks he is wise and safe, let him become a fool so that he can become wise. I love that phrase so much because what it does is it speaks directly to the heart of an individual who looks at the wisdom of this world and says, you know, I want to feel distant from this. I want to feel like that doesn't make any sense. That alone can be a struggle because, again, we were kind of raised with this 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 very independent ethos. Like we don't like being dependent on anybody. We don't like being dependent on other things. Even when it's something where you say, like, well, even God, you don't want to be dependent on God. Now, a lot of us, when you word it like that, will say, yes, I want to be dependent on God. But it's really, really, really difficult because we're independent people. We love having control over things. We love being able to say that we have our plans and we have our intentions and things like this. And the problem is that when we do that, we're actually fooling ourselves into thinking that we have control over anything. <laughs> We fool ourselves into thinking that we can actually change the destiny of our future when in reality, that has been crafted out by God. God has, has defined what he wants us to do. And if he wills for something to happen, there's no degree of planning or preparation that's going to prevent that from occurring. And so I love how Paul words it in the very beginning here in that way to flat out state that if we want to become people who are truly wise, we have to be willing to become foolish first. We have to be willing to dispel these things that are these social and cultural norms in order to say, okay, now I want to be rewritten in, in a way. And in a sense, I want to be built back up and recreated in the, the mindset of God so that I can understand and have that discernment for what is actually wise. The second thing that I love in this section is there at the very end when it talks about, and I'll cut out the little hyphenated part in verse 22, but Verse says, so let no one boast in human leaders, for everything is yours, everything is yours, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to you. It's this sense of oneness and unity, and this is where I go to what I was talking about a second ago with this oftentimes us, us tricking ourselves into thinking that our relationship with Christ is a partnership. I'm a partnership. I do my thing, and I'm going to do it with Christ, and I'm going to be a really good partner. I'm going to do uh, so much of the stuff that Christ wants me to do and everything, but I still maintain this little shred of independence. I still maintain this little shred of my control over my life and my plans and different things that, that I think are important to me. And so it's a partnership. And that is, is a very, very different mindset from what we see Christ talking about and what we see his apostles talking about. When they talk about the fact that we're not supposed to just simply come alongside Christ as equal partners, we're supposed to be completely transformed. As we were saying at the very beginning, being torn down and kind of the way we feel the world has built us up so that we can be built back up again in the image of God and in the image of Christ. This idea of oneness with Christ, I think, is something that we have to think about because it's a good litmus test for whether the way we are living is in a way that would be honorable to God. If you were to imagine Christ himself saying and doing the things that you say and do, if you were to imagine Christ preaching the things that you think, would that be something that, makes sense or would it look weird would it just look bizarre to see christ saying that thing or thinking that thing and if that's the case then that's kind of an indication that maybe there is room for conviction there 
And I don't mean to say that, you know, if you have this moment where you say, like, I don't want Christ saying that. It, it, I'm not trying to say that if you have that reaction that, oh, well, you're being a bad Christian. Because, look, I have bad things I say and I do all the time. I would argue that talking about hookers is not necessarily on the case because, I don't know if you've read the Bible, but he associates with a lot of prostitutes. That's my defense. Um, I haven't read anything about blow yet. Um, but that being the case, you know, when you go and look in there, you know, there is another phrase that people will use in there that, you know, uh, to, to err is human and to forgive is divine. You know, uh, you know that's, that's a phrase that, that's, that's not a bad one, but it applies here, where, of course, we're all going to be flawed people. Those little moments where we realize that we're not upholding our end of the bargain of oneness with Christ shouldn't be something that just beats us down, but it should be something that convicts us and motivates us to get better and to grow as individuals. To say, maybe I don't understand Christ as much as I think I do. Maybe I don't understand the Bible as much as I think I should. Maybe I don't pray as, 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 as often as I would like. And because of that, I'm lacking that sense of oneness and connection with my God. These are all things that we should be thinking. And they're also good ways to firewall against what we end up seeing out there in the rest of the world. And I think ultimately where this leads to is it leads to kind of a differentiation between two different types of Christians sit here and overanalyze and get into more. But like broadly two different categories. And I've categorized them this way. You have kind of world-driven Jesus fans, and then you have Jesus-driven world fans. That's a very clever sermony way of wording this. So I hope you remember that. Uh, world-driven Jesus fans, what do I mean by that? So I guess what I'm trying to say is you have a lot of Christians who they do view it as a partnership, and as a part of a partnership, you have your constraints, your partner has their constraints. And so they may say something is possible, but you may say, I don't know if this is possible. You allow the things of this world to be your divining rod to say that, no, I want to do what Jesus says. Like, I, I like Jesus. I'm a fan of Jesus, you know, but I have to be reasonable. I have to be prudent. You know, we use these phrases as kind of like excuses to make ourselves feel good about maybe not doing what we feel like Jesus is asking us to do. You know, well, you know, I just I just don't really know if that really that really fits what I'm at. Well, Jesus didn't ask. <laughs> you know, Jesus calls us to certain things because so often he wants to use us despite our limitations of what we think we can do. And so we don't want to be driven by our worldly constraints. We want to be driven by Christ. But said you do have a lot of individuals that, you know, they, they sit here and they limit themselves or, or they enable themselves errantly according to what the world says. So they are world-driven in a sense. You can see this borne out in a lot of these phrases where it's like, yeah, you know, I know that, I know Jesus says that I should turn the other cheek, but I mean, let's be reasonable. I mean, you know, that, that's, that's exactly how it kind of comes across. But then you have other individuals, and, and ultimately where we would love to be that, I, I, you know, as I was sitting here writing this message and studying it, I was sitting here thinking, I don't even know if you can really truly achieve this level, but I think this is the goal, is to be a Jesus-driven world fan. And, you know, a lot of times individuals will sit here, especially very principled individuals, talk about the evilness of the world and the falling of the world and everything is terrible in the world. And, and look, I kind of do it too, but rest assured, this world isn't here because Satan created it. This world is here because God created something. And the entire timeline of everything we read in the Bible and everything we see prophesied about, you know, yet to come, is all about God reconciling himself back with this world. Maybe not the things that have come in and infested or corrupted the world, but with coming back and reclaiming his creation, it's kind of the ultimate display of God's glory and his power that not even sin could corrupt the thing which he created. God will ultimately take this thing back. 
So I want to be a fan of the work that God has called me to do in the world. I want to get my hands dirty. I want to sit here and roll my sleeves up. I want to, you know, sit here and do the things that God has called me to do. But I want to be driven not by the limitations that I think I have, not by my own insecurities, and not by my own false confidences. I want to be driven by what I feel Christ has called me to do. And as a result of that, I want to be able to see where God is working in my life in ways that I can't explain in any other way aside from the fact that God has his hand on it. You know, one of the comments that I remember a while back, you know, somebody had made, they, they kind of looked at, uh, they, they, they were looking at a lot of the things that I'll get involved in, and, and you know, especially when it comes to ministry and church and everything. I was talking with Charlene, and we are kind of talking about how, you know, we, we'll get described as these old, like, energizer mothers, right? You know, that, that you just kind of pop the battery in, and we just kind of go. And, um, you know, it, I, was, I was recalling how uh, one of my mentors was, was kind of confiding in me, you know, later on and saying that, uh, well, you know, I was talking with somebody, uh, you know, months ago, and, and they were concerned that you, you just, you're just going too hard, and you're going you're gonna to get exhausted, and you're going to burn out, and everything's, you know, going to be bad, and you're just going to crash. But, you know, what he told me was probably more motivating than anything I've heard any other person told me, because what he told me is, he said, but you know, when I'm, when I'm looking at you, I feel like the only way I can describe it is that clearly God has called you to something and you're doing it. And God is giving you what other people may think you lack, what you may think you lack and all that. And I mean, that's something where I'm very, I'm very hesitant to, I guess, share that story about me. But I feel like that explains a lot about what I feel like I know I myself in my life and what I hope all of us want to have is something where we look at what God is calling us to do and we say, there's no way I can do that. I'm going to crash. I don't have enough time. I'm going to neglect everything else in my life that I feel like is important. There's no way I can accomplish this. But yet, if you're faithful, God gives you the way. He gives you the resources. He gives you the energy. He gives you the time. He gives you all of those things. So what it means to be Jesus-driven is to be able to look at the limitations and the confidences of this world and say, I got it. I see them. I recognize them. So I'm not being reckless here. I, I, I'm very well aware of what the risk is here. This is what I feel Christ has called me to do. And because of that, that is what is going to drive me. And I'm going to do it because I'm a fan of the things of this world. I'm going to sit here and look at the things of this world. I'm going to be, I'm going to recognize the things of this world and not be a complete idiot about how I do things. But ultimately, what takes priority is Christ. Because this isn't a partnership. This is Christ in charge of my life. There is a parable that speaks to this. So if you go to Matthew 25, this will be the last section of our Bible for today. So if, you want to go to, if you go to Matthew 25, you end up seeing this parable of the servants and the talents. So the translation I have, have says talents is money. Don't worry about it. talents, money. Uh, so you have these servants who are given talents, and you can see how they use their seed money that they were given from their master and then what motivated them. So let's, let's take a look at this real quick. So again, this is in Matthew 25. Um, starting in verse 14. So in the very beginning it says, For it is just like a man about to go on a journey. He called his own servants and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents. Money. To another two talents. To another one talent. Depending on each one's ability. Then he went on a journey. Immediately the man who had received five talents went, put them to work and earned five more. In the same way the man who with two earned two more. But the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now, 
This is interesting because again, what you have is you have a master who it's saying right here, gave according to what he knew each servant's ability was. The master knew what that servant was able to do. And so he gave them according to his wisdom and his knowledge. He had a plan and he just wanted people to act on what he called them to do. They may have had their own reservations, uh, but this is what I want you to do. And that, that's actually what you end up seeing, right? You end up seeing two of them going out and putting the money to work. The guy who had five, the guy who had two, they put them to work and they got some kind of return back. But then you have the, the, the third individual who just had one talent. The master trusted him with that one talent, said, go, here's one talent, put it to work. And you see, everybody else was able to, everybody else, you know, you'll see, was able to double what they had. But that one individual hid it away. He didn't do the work. So let's keep reading. In verse 19, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents approached, presented five more talents, and said, Master, you gave me five talents. See, I've earned five more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. So good good job, first guy. The, second, uh, the man with two talents also approached. He said, Master, you gave me two talents. See, I have earned two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. I love the fact that the first two individuals didn't have the same amount. I love that they both doubled it. So you can tell that the master had a plan that, like, I know what you can do. I know that all of you, you can read between the lines, is you can double what, what we have here. But you see the actual outcome was different. The outcome was different. One person had five. One person had two. Now, uh, human wisdom, we might look at the individual who was able to make five and go, what? Look, you can make five. You did so. You did over twice as good as an individual who had two. Like you're, you're like the A plus servant, right? But that's not what you see the master do. You see the master give the exact same compliment, the exact same blessing to both servants. It didn't matter what the actual outcome was. And I think this is so important because often what we think of when we hear people and when I've talked with individuals who are, you know, wanting to get active and involved in things when it comes to the church or ministry or service or anything like that, they'll say, well, I want to, but I can't X, Y, Z. And there's almost this feeling of like shame associated with that. God doesn't care if like you physically weren't able to do this or the time-wise you weren't able to do that or whatever. That actual outcome of what happened from your devotion to the calling wasn't really relevant. It was the fact that you did it. It was the fact that God knew what you could do and you faithfully did that thing. I think this is critically important because less individuals who are kind of like energizer bunny, high output people start thinking that somehow they have a fast track, inside track to you know pleasing God. You don't because God blesses everybody equally who follows his calling. But the other thing too is to understand that if you're not able to do as much, if you're, you know, whether it's because of, uh, uh, you know, some something about, you know, physically or emotionally or time-wise or financially or whatever, it's irrelevant. All God really cares about is that you answer the call. So let's keep looking. Let's look at the last person. The man who had received one talent also approached and said, Master, I know you. You're a harsh man, reaping where you haven't sowed and gathering where you haven't scattered seed. So I was afraid and went off and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. His master replied to him, you evil, lazy servant. If you knew that I reap where I haven't sowed and gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers and I would have received my money back with interest when I returned. There's another kind of interesting thing built in here that's so easy to miss. 
It is the fact that the master, not only did this individual get what the master knew he was capable of dealing with and the individual not do it because he, he was afraid or he had some kind of alternative reason, but you also see the master turning around and kind of acknowledging and saying, if you know that I'm, basically, if you know I'm the master, you know that I, 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 I reap things where I haven't sowed, I do all this stuff. It's, they're the kind of the Bible versey way of basically explaining the fact that I can get what I need. Okay, like I don't, I don't, I don't need you to go do it. I can get whatever I need. You know. So what he's saying right here to the servant is, if you knew that I could get what I needed, then why did you let anything hold you back from losing my money? What did it matter? What I want to connect this with is to this this idea that when we're sitting here doing something for God, we have to understand that we're not doing it because God needs it. You know, God isn't like this machine that we have to keep filling up with fuel of our devotion and our love and everything, or else the machine stops. God's going to get done what he needs to get done. He's going to receive what he needs to receive, regardless of what you do or I do or anybody else does. I have no doubt in my mind that if those of us who, you know, went to go plant this church and never planted this church, that something else would have popped up to meet the type of need of what we we're trying to address. There's no doubt in my mind. Because the individuals are not the important thing. God wants to use you. He wants to give you that opportunity to share in the glory that you see him talking about with the first two servants when he says, share your master's joy. He wants you to share that joy and he wants you to share that glory, but he can do it without us. And so because of that, that should actually be a freeing thing. It should allow us to be maybe a little bit more reckless with our calling. As oftentimes we'll say in this church, we should be willing to give ourselves permission to fail because our failure is ultimately not our failure. God's going to get done what he needs to get done. And if something doesn't meet whatever standard of success that we think it needs to meet, then so be it. This extends to our individual lives as well. If we sit here and a lot of times we latch on to this, this cultural contemporary wisdom about things. Well, I want to be this type of person. I want to be that type of person. You know, I want to be, be strong and independent, yada, yada, yada. When we sit here and latch on to these things, because we have some idea of who we think we need to be. And that really kind of ignores the fact that God knows who he created you to be. And he wants to make you that person. But he's only going to do that if you get out of your own way. He's only going to sit here and do as much as, as you will permit him to do in his life. Not because he couldn't do more, but because that is where you start seeing the glory of God. That's where you start seeing... The, the grace and the love that comes from him, that he loves us so much that he would say, if you're truly just not going to get out of the way in this one area, then okay, I'll let you have it. That, that's what you want. So that's what I'll do. And in the meantime, my plan will still come to fruition. That is both the love and then the hard love that God presents to us. And so what do we get out of this parable? Well, what we, what kind of the, the main line is, is that, you know, there there is something to say for kind of being prudent and understanding the things of this world and, and being aware of kind of how things work, but we can't let the wisdom of this world be what drives us. We have to be willing to be individuals that acknowledge that the wisdom of God, that the calling of God knows more than we know, that God knows more about the situation that we do, that God knows more about you and about me than we even know. And because of that, he calls us and entrusts us with that with which he knows that we can handle. So it's not to say, you know, again, the popular phrase of, you know, God doesn't give you more than you can handle, but it's that God doesn't give you more than he knows you can't handle with him. 
So with that, we have to have the confidence when we feel God is calling us, whether it's a big calling, like a ministry type of thing, or whether it's a little calling. Go talk to that person. Go reconcile with that individual. Go show compassion to that family. We have to be willing to step out, even if we say, I don't think I can help. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. To look at it and say, right, but like God called you there. So just go. Just try. Because God knows what you are capable of doing. And when we do it, whether we, we think we did a good job or not, when we are willing to go out and be faithful to the calling that God has placed on our lives, that is when he looks at us, regardless of the earthly, worldly outcome, and he says, share your master's joy. And that's ultimately what we're after. So what's the real danger in following the wisdom of this world? It's that it robs you of an opportunity to share in the joy of the master. And when you put it that way, it starts becoming a lot more clear about what makes more sense really. To sit here and do it my own way, which at best will lead to a very temporary victory, or to sit here and rely on God, who can achieve far more, and, and who, who will achieve far more, and be able to enjoy and share in that glory of what he is able to achieve. Let's pray. Father God, as we sit here and we think about everything that the, the new year is throwing at us, we pray that, that you would help us to be able to look at all these things and to be able to, to commit to growing in a way that puts you first, to help us to be able to not hate the world and not shun the world or anything like that, but help us to have hearts that are convicted to listen to what your calling is in our life, to where you may be moving us to act or moving us to talk or moving us to interact with others or maybe moving us to stop and pause and give us the strength and the courage and the discipline to be able to be the thing that you need us to be. Father God, we pray that in everything that we do in our entire ethos of how we live our day-to-day -day life, you would help us to be cautious of the wisdom that the world wants to throw at us, but instead to prioritize the wisdom that you've already shared with us. Speak truth into our heart and help us to be able to discern where it is you are calling us to act and where the world may be tempting us to move away. As we go throughout the following days and weeks, help us to be able to apply these lessons and the different opportunities that a new year brings and help us to be individuals that are, that are moved deeply by, by where you are calling us and help us to be faithful to that calling so that we can achieve things that are greater than what we could have ever dreamed. We pray these things in your son's precious holy name. Amen.